Vicki Robin, welcome to the new school. Well, thank you so much, Michael. You and I have been friends for a long time, and I was trying to remember where and when we met. Do you remember where we actually met? I do. I remember it was in the Environmental Grantmakers Association conference in, I think, 1994. Mm-hmm. I was invited by Betsy Taylor to speak about consumption. Uh-huh. And um, it was a really an amazing event. And I remember you standing up and being so cogent hmm. and um, deep and not positional, mm-hmm. you know, really drawing this group's attention to mm-hmm. um, the deeper issues. And oh, thank like, you. Whoa, who is this? <laughs> Who's this guy? So 94, 2004, 2014. Yeah, this is like 20 Just years. Just about right? 20 years, wow. Right, and yeah. then I remember... Um, yeah, 2004, I went to the Bioneers, Mm -hmm. and I was deep in my cancer recovery, Mm -hmm. and, you know, very introverted, Mm -hmm. and sort of standing back from the whole melee of impressing one another with all that we know and all that we can do and stuff like that and just like watching this conference and you asked me how I was and I said I have cancer and you said come to Commonweal free for nothing and it's like wow this person loves me (laughs) so that was a that was another important moment in our relationship and you came on the cancer help program at Commonweal I did Mm -hmm. I did I'd already been given the all clear but um Mm -hmm. physiologically but Mm -hmm. That was, that was a big elephant to swallow. And what was the Cancer Help Program like for you? Um, you know, I loved, I loved the Santray. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it helped me. The, the cancer journey was really a journey of uh, sort of discovering the depths of my psyche, you know, mm-hmm. going down into the, the basement of things rather mm-hmm. than into the elevation of things. And... And so things like the Santre and um, were really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, my talks with you were really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, the massages were glorious. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, there's something when you have cancer about just hanging out with other people who have yeah, cancer and talking yeah. about things like colostomies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> this, this sort of comforting, you know. Right. It was yeah. like, and I wrote some poetry there. I have a poem that I wrote right. there about my cancer tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Um So, you are the co-author with Joe Dominguez of a very extraordinary bestseller, Your Money or Your Life, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence, which was originally published uh, by Viking Penguin in 1992 and then republished in 98 and 2008, and it's in 11 languages. Um, And you have a new book out. which is, I think, equally remarkable, called Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth. So my hope is to talk about both of those books and also to talk a little about your life. Um, But I'd like to start uh, with uh, your money or your life. Um, I was uh, rereading a a summary of the book on uh, your website, Um, and uh, let's just start with uh, what was the fundamental thesis of your money or your life? How do you describe the, the fundamental thesis to people? 
Mm. Well, how I describe it to people and how I might describe it to you are two different things. How would you describe it to me? To you. Um, Well, I'll start with what I say to people, is that Mm. your money, your life is a nine-step, presents a nine-step program for personal financial transformation, Mm. uh, rooted both in self-interest and in higher values, Mm. Um, and that it's a whole system approach. And how I describe it to you is it's a process of liberating people uh, from the thrall of the uh, consumer culture, that the consumer culture has inhabited our imagination. And behind that, the money, money culture and the corporate industrial culture, that, that we have been inhabited by the matrix, or we're living in a matrix that monetizes, that, that makes us believe that Everything we need, we need money to acquire. And it, it sort of pushed to the margins um, and made us question our sanity when we invest time and in, in, in non-monetary things. You know, and It pushed to the margins our relationships. It pushed everything to the margins. And everybody understands you have to make a dying. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, Charlie Brown when he saw the kids every day getting in the school bus, you know, and every day we go to the school and we get in the school bus and we come home and he says, like, who thought that up? You know, that this is not a natural way to live. And so in one sense, it has a practical aspect of helping people lower their expenses, increase their savings, get out of debt, feel really smart. It sort of works with the grain of the American consumer culture, getting the bargain. But at a deeper level, it, it asks people to recognize who they are, the value of their own lives, and to put that as the superior value to the money and stuff. To be the masters of money, not as in making a million, but as in understanding what money can and can't buy. So it's, I think it's a liberation manual, personally. You know, as I reread it today, reread the summary, I just, it was so interesting, the effect on me, because I thought, you know, I could really do more with this. Here's a book that's uh, been out for, uh, what, 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've known the book, I've read the book before, but just as I read it, I thought, you know, I could really do more with this in my own life. And I mean, here I am, you know, I'm about to turn 70 and I won't be making the salary I'm making forever. And, you know, we've saved some money, but um, we'd be very thoughtful, my wife Charlotte and I, to, uh, to reflect on some of these things. Um, and then the other thing I thought was there was a piece in the Huffington Post today, um, just one more piece, but about how dramatically the United States stands out over all other industrial countries in the inequality of income. And I think we're third in the world, along with Mexico and Chile, as the highest income inequality, or Mexico and one other country. And you look at the graph, and, you know, here are all the Great Britain and, you know, the European countries and so on, and and then the United States is just way up there, just magnitudes of space up there on the graph in terms of income inequality. And you think about, you know, the majority, the large majority of American people are now living on, you know, very modest incomes, doing service jobs that often aren't a lot of fun, um, 
And you think to yourself, if there was ever a time in American history that obviously one wants to <laughs> do everything one can to fight for a more just tax system and a better distribution of wealth, but in the given that, you know, the interests that be are controlling uh, the tax system and everything else, um, if you're going to live a life with any kind of quality under these circumstances of inequality, this book has a lot to say. It, it certainly does. I, 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 we wrote that book, we, we really, we lived it in the 70s. Mm-hmm. We started teaching seminars in the 80s, and the book came out in the 90s. So that was on top of 20 years of living and teaching um, and not teaching because we particularly constituted ourselves as teachers, but because people really wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, I was inspired. I was like sort of lit on fire mm-hmm. um, in terms of the teaching. I mean, I was okay. I was supported Joe in doing the teaching. He was the one who developed the program. But I was lit on fire in 1989 when I went to a conference called the Globescope. Pacific Assembly, which was the first public hearing of um, the Brundtland Commission in the United States, even after the report had come out, because the United States refused to have hearings in the United States questioning the the collision course of the environment. And, and the Brundtland Commission created the term sustainability and was... Sustainable development. Sustainable they, development. They, right. um, yeah, they, they brought that term it. forward yeah, and yeah, they popularized right. it. That was what year, roughly? That was They published it in, I think, 86. Yeah, right. And so in 89 is when I went, and right. I was like suddenly realized mm-hmm. every commissioner who took the stage said... The biggest problem, we've traveled the world, we've heard people all over the world, the biggest problem on our planet is the level and pattern of consumption in North America. And then they would shrug, like, well, you know, you can't do anything about that. You can't get between an American and their right to consume. It's, you know, and and Americans will say, well, 75% of the economy depends on consumerism. That's, 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 Sorry, it's BS. It's like what they're really saying is, I don't want to change. I've got my snout in the trough, and I'm not taking it out. Mm-hmm. And that's not to be dismissive of other people, because I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sitting there, and I realized, we've already taught your money, your life. We didn't call it that. We've already taught that program. What did you call it? We called it Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving mm-hmm. Financial Independence. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd already taught that for 10 years, and we knew, because we did surveys, that people, on average, lowered their consumption by 20%. Naturally, gloriously, feeling like they were smart. And 20%, you think about 20%, it shouldn't be that impossible. Well, of course, once you... But the thing is, is that that's why I say the major thing is the thrall of the consumer culture. It is this cloud of unknowing, (laughs) this cloud of unconsciousness that has descended upon Mm -hmm. us. And it's reinforced through all the corporate media, Mm -hmm. you know, like you can be happy if you buy stuff, Mm -hmm. don't pay attention. You could even look at it as bread and circus. Our food is kept on naturally low cost. Mm And our entertainment industry is bar none. So, so we're happily in this sort of blissful blanket of unconsciousness. And, um, and I thought, well, you know, this program that we've developed uh, has the possibility, because at that point we were 20% into overshoot. So my little brain goes like, okay, 
we can solve the biggest problem on the planet. Here goes. <laughs> and that's when I, I came home on fire. Mm. And that fire did not stop for a decade. Mm. And that's when we sold, um, that's when I gave everything to selling your money, your life. Joe had been a te- a technical writer on Wall Street, but he had had a, he thought he was going to write essays in his retirement, but he couldn't, he could he had a writer's block. So I took it on. I wrote the book and he didn't want to, he wasn't, he was an introvert as we were, and I, and I was like, let me edit, you know? So I spent the decade in the belief that if you, that all change that sticks happens in the consciousness of individuals, ultimately, mm-hmm. the systems are all made up of individuals who share a story, healthy or unhealthy, so that if we could change <laughs> enough individuals, you know, that sort of Everett Rogers, you know, change curve, you know, if mm-hmm. we could get to 5% of the population and then 20%, I mean, I was sort of in that narrative about change, um, we could solve the biggest problem on the planet. Hmm. Who was Joe Dominguez? Hmm. Joe Dominguez. That's a. It's a good. You know, like who was Joe Dominguez? Where is Waldo? Um, mm-hmm. Well, Joe was born in 1938, and he died in 1997. Um, he was born to a Cuban father who had TB and a Venezuelan mother who could speak no English. Um, at that point, with TB, they put. People in, they put people in sanitariums. They put them in isolation. So fundamentally, Joe was the head of his household from the time he was two. Where was he living? In Spanish Harlem. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had to translate for his mother. He worked from the time he was eight years old. And so he was. He was one thing to say about Joe is he's, he's a person who, in several senses, he was awake way earlier than most of the rest mm-hmm. of us. Mm-hmm. Number one, he's a, he was a genius. He was tested way up at genius level. Um, and he was, but because of his growing up in Harlem, he, he was sort of a genius of the ordinary, a genius mm-hmm. of like, how does this world work and how can mm-hmm. I work in it? Um, there's probably a lot of geniuses who grew mm-hmm. up in poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and he understood that, you know, when we're children we normally can like lean back into our parents and he got it that he couldn't do that. Um, that his task was to keep his mother from being hysterical. You know? mm-hmm. So in a way, Joe never had a childhood and, mm-hmm. and he grew up with this sort of fierce independence and dependence on his own capacity for discernment. Uh, he had a, a particular quality of being able to penetrate through the stories that we all tell and get to the structures underneath it. Uh, so those talents led him several places. He was put into the top high school in New York at that time, Bronx Science, because somebody saw that he was a smart kid. Um, never finished college. Um, went off on all sorts of adventures. And by chance, ended up um, almost managing a brokerage firm on Wall Street when he was, like, 24 years old, something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, something really early. And in his work, uh, trying to figure out how does this whole system work, he he developed a set of tools uh, that he found could track 
the movement of the stock market outside of the fundamentals of companies. And so he was one of the first people to develop technical analysis. He was like, really? Yeah. And he, uh, he worked for a, uh, an investment banking firm, Lobroads, and mm-hmm. he wrote a weekly market letter for mm-hmm. five years. Mm-hmm. Never invested his own money because mm-hmm. uh, he knew that somehow when he had his own stake, you know, his own stakes in the game that he couldn't see as clearly. Um, and as this, he tells the story, you know, by just looking at the numbers, he was able to predict and Khrushchev got deposed or, you know, I mean, he was able to see world events because it shows up in, in the behavior of the market. So he developed many of those early tools. And he knew from the time he was 12 that money was sort of like military service. It's something that's not real that you get through because you're part of this culture, but that there's something beyond that is way more interesting. So he, all the while he was doing that Wall Street work, he knew he was going to retire. His call was to retire by the time he was 30, and he got out just before his 31st birthday. With how much money? Um, I don't know his total nut, but um, it was less than $100,000. Mm-hmm. He lived for the remainder of his life on $500 a month. So he, he took that $100,000 and he invested it in uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, long-term exactly. U.S. Treasury and bonds. Exactly, ca- and Canadian. They were dollar-denominated Canadian bonds at the Which time. Which at that time was a... Uh, a, a secure investment. Yeah, and Today, and and he had yeah. he had bonds up at nine percent. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, interest rates that would be. So the basic he, principle was, you you earn as effectively as you can. You drop your uh, your expenditures as low as you can. You save as much money as you can until you get to the point of financial independence and then you take your 100,000 or whatever number today it would be a lot more uh, and you invest that in very safe ways and then for the rest of your life you are free to uh, do exactly what you're called to do. Bingo. Yeah. And, and, um, Which is an extraordinary principle. It's, it's, and it's you you Earn as much money as you can, um, uh, and aligned aligned with your integrity and your health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's integrity is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You earn your money as mm-hmm. a hooker, maybe right. you get yeah, out yeah. quicker, but yeah, maybe yeah. that agrees with you. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it has to agree with your soul, mm-hmm. and you spend as little as you can. And it's not. I mean, for Joe, it was like a whole. You know. Living on nothing was almost like a sport, but but he'd grown up that way. He mm-hmm. figured this out early on. But you, your friends give you haircuts, that kind of stuff. And so it's it's. Um, I met a woman the other day in uh, in the Habitat for Humanity uh, store up here on Whidbey, and uh, you know I was buying some stuff for our little house up here, and. Um, and I said to her, you know, I, I furnished this place from Habitat for Humanity. And she she was a volunteer there. And she says, yeah, she says, the only thing I buy retail now is my toothbrush and my underwear. Exactly. So, you know, so there are a lot of people on Whidbey, not necessarily for purely philosophical reasons, but just this is an extraordinary place. When you look at the number of, you know, you know uh, stores that essentially recycle 
people's stuff. Uh, and everybody shops there and everybody contributes their stuff and it feeds the community. Good Cheer, the Langley shop, you know, right. feeds the community and uh, Habitat for Humanity goes to good purposes and then Waif, the animal shelter, has its own little place. And so all these places are essentially doing something quite similar to yeah. what you and Joe were talking about in terms of creating a local economy of recycled stuff that gets out of the retail chain. I mean, it's not an but exact... It's, uh, so we weren't exactly talking about that. You figure that out yeah. once you realize that money is your life energy, that yeah. you're, everything you buy is yeah. a piece of your, your one wild and precious life. Right. And so you're going to maximize the pleasure and, and serviceability for every dollar spent or every peso or reai, you know, spent. Right. So it's a byproduct. You know, going going to thrift stores is a byproduct of waking up to the mm-hmm. value of your life. Mm-hmm. For me, see, I, I was always like, I don't want to be prescriptive. I don't want to tell people to shop at thrift stores. You know, like go ahead mm-hmm. and shop at Bergdahl's. Mm-hmm. I don't care, mm-hmm. but just do it knowing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. See, yeah. and I think to bridge over to the blessing book, but you may not go want to go there yet, is I'm noticing that that's sort of a signature of. What I try to offer people is like, wake up, tell the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only us chickens. No shame, no blame. Mm-hmm. But but let's if you if you love authenticity, let's let's get it right down to the bone mm-hmm. because it's more fun that way. It's mm-hmm. more interesting. Mm-hmm. Living life outside of a manufactured story is just more mm-hmm. fun and interesting. Mm-hmm. So, did you and Joe become romantic partners? We did. Mm-hmm. Were you, did you stay romantic partners over a long period of time? We did. Mm-hmm. How was that? I love Joe with all my heart. Mm. Yeah. You were with him up until his death. Yeah, no, twenty-seven years. Wow. Yeah, and and as as things evolved, and now I distinguish between romance and relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think romance is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't necessarily last. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> last. And then relationship is something else entirely. It is entirely different. And and so what what evolved that was actually the most fulfilling for me was our intellectual and spiritual and world changing um, partnership. Yeah, you had a shared intention. We did, and it was we called. We took Helen Keller. Life is either a great adventure or it's nothing. And Joe and I could like do a mind meld, mm-hmm. and we could just like soar and you know see things. And mm-hmm. we trusted one another to to do the pieces that the other one didn't really mm-hmm. do that well. So so I really surrendered to his greater knowledge on money, finance, mm-hmm. everything. I didn't mm-hmm. know squat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he trusted me to be a you communicator. Knew how to teach. Yeah. And to inspire. Even when you were five years old, you created a, <laughs> a classroom in your house with you as the teacher, right? Exactly, because I then wanted you to go to school. A theater group when you were a little older. Yeah, I knew. I knew how. I and I still do. I know how to, like, get people really excited about yeah. the things I'm excited mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And um, where does that come from? Do you think in your family? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, it's an interesting thing. I. Um, I've done some work recently, sort of de- going mm-hmm. back into the mm-hmm. past, and 
and, and another layer of completing with mm-hmm. my family, my parents. And um, uh, both my parents were pretty smart. They came mm-hmm. from pretty smart families. Um, but what I discovered, uh, looking at my father's lineage, I mean, my father committed suicide when I was 13, and he was pretty depressed most of the time I was around. So I didn't know him well, but I was sort of been digging. And his father came from Odessa, um, and he was a physician and a public health expert. Came to Wilmington, Delaware, and be, it became uh, the he was the one who solved typhoid in Wilmington, Delaware. Whoa! Because he understood that it was the water system and he cleaned up the water system. Amazing. And Irene Dupont, the Dupont family, was so impressed with him that they made him his their personal physician. Wow! Um, and in a time when anti-Semitism was really rife. So I, I look at that, and then I look at my grandmother on my father's side, Eva, who was a an activist, mm-hmm. a poet. Um, in Odessa? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we come from the same stuff, mm-hmm. who knows. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so she was a pretty outspoken, outrageous person, mm-hmm. um, and very socially active, awards from organizations mm-hmm. into women's rights. So I look at that family and I think, this is a family that is not conflicted about going out into the world and seeing what's going on and creating and making a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, my mother was very artistic, uh, suppressed. Where did she come from? Uh, her, uh, well, her family, there's some debate about whether mm-hmm. there was some Sephardic blood in there, because mm-hmm. that's the highest class mm-hmm. Judaism. But it, um, Germany and Poland, mostly mm-hmm. Polish, but mm-hmm. but um, a little bit more um, sort of mundane people looking mm-hmm. to kind of climb in status, a little mm-hmm. bit more of that mm-hmm. sort of, con- mm-hmm. you know, constricted mm-hmm. people. But my mother was very mm-hmm. intelligent. She was witty. She was mm-hmm. um, artistic. Mm-hmm. And all of that sort of, like, encased in being a doctor's wife. So she mm-hmm. had to, mm-hmm. you know, she had to, like, keep all that mm-hmm. packed in, mm-hmm. much to her detriment. But so I, I have... Um, I don't know anybody in my family who's quite like me, um, but there's those strains. That, that but you were born in Oklahoma, is that right? Did I yeah, think? I was born, my father, because of his depression, was never sent abroad uh-huh. during World War II, so he was stationed in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, and that's I where I was born. And I grew mm-hmm. up on Long Island, mm-hmm. in Hempstead, and later Manhasset, mm-hmm. um, went to Brown University, and mm-hmm. then got out, you know, how, mm-hmm. how at that point in our lives, in our generation, mm-hmm. you know, getting, getting to the other coast <laughs> mm-hmm. from where you grew up was like a big value. So was it after college that you went to this commune in Wisconsin and, or was that later on? Um, well, I hate calling it a commune because that, that right. has that has um, you went to a farm. connotations. You, you went to a, a, we, a raspberry patch I, with one acre <laughs> over the water table. A cranberry bog. A cranberry um, bog. Yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, I spent a couple of years in New York. Mm-hmm. I, I fundamentally, I married my college sweetheart, mm-hmm. um, and we were both we both had aspirations um, mm-hmm. in the entertainment world. I wanted to mm-hmm. be a theatrical director. He wanted to be a mm-hmm. A TV mm-hmm. producer. Mm-hmm. So we were 
on our way and both hit dead ends mm. after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, had read electric Kool-Aid acid mm. tests, mm-hmm. you know, and we're of that era. It was 1969. And over the years, all I've had to say to somebody is, well, it was 1969. Right. And they go like, oh, right. Yeah, right. So we got in, we sold, we put all our furniture out on the sidewalk, sold the car, bought a van, got a dog from the pound and went on the great cross country adventure. Um, mm-hmm. And um, long story short, eventually hooked up with, uh, with some other people who mm-hmm. shared our, um, quest for truth mm-hmm. and our willingness to just, you know, sort of toss it all. Um, and I'm somebody who likes to sort of go to the edge and like go like, I, I didn't, re- you know, people would say like, oh, you were a hippie. And I was never, I don't think I was ever a hippie. I think I was just more philosophically curious about what's out there. You know, what else is there? And I would always be going and looking and peering um, over the edge. So eventually we we formed a group, um, and that included Joe and several other people, um, to really look deeply at what is our culture. You know, how have we been entrained by the culture? To th- and so we were just like a small group of people with the aid of some of the, you know, beautiful chemicals available to us at that time, really diving in. But with such, I mean, we were all like, you know, over the over time, a community formed around us. And one time we figured out that, that most of us were valedictorians of our high school classes. You know, we were, we were that kind of true blue, really, really smart people. Valedictorians on acid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, so you know what I mean? It's like we were really going for it yeah. in terms of... What's really true, and really willing to be able, willing to examine our own behavior mm-hmm. and question it. Now, so pieces I've picked up because there was some time in Wisconsin, there was some time in Mexico, right? Yeah, some time in Mexico, some time in Arizona, and that's all. We can mm-hmm. just tell a fantastical story about that. Okay, but, <laughs> but just the trajectory. Where did you you went from where to where to where? What was the right? So I went from New York to California to Mexico, and that's where this group the, formed. The group formed, and um, and then we went to Northern Wisconsin on the I invitation of a friend um, to help him with land that he bought sight unseen. You know, it was the right. back to the land time. So in a way, right. that was another piece of living right. the story of my right. time. Right. But, you know, like when we were in Mexico, somebody came down to visit us and he had this um, audio cassettes were like brand new, you know, like, and so he had an audio cassette and an audio cassette player. And um, he played us this tape by this guy named Ramdas who had just come back from India. And we sat there and we listened to it and we thought, that guy is like, he's finding out what we're finding out. Yeah. And um, we had the book Monday Night Class from Stephen Gaskin. Right. You know, so, but it was a time, it was very, um, I, could, I don't know if it was alternative, but it's not mm-hmm. like now we're awash. And, you know, spiritual evolution is sort of like, you know, you can buy it at the corner store. But then we were really sort of like a very small, scattered group of people running these experiments. Um, How big was your group? Varied over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, sort of like a core group that mostly lived together, and then there were other people that we mm-hmm. met 
in our travels. Or we'd, You're talking about 8 to 12 kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And we never, you know, we could... We were a community. We were an intentional family. We were a committed team. People asked me, like, they would look at us and they'd go, like, um, what, what goes on inside? <laughs> you know, what is this that we're looking at? And I said, you know, look, it's like a cross between a monastery and the crew of the spaceship Enterprise. <laughs> and that's about all I'm going to tell you. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that's what I would say to people. Because to explain the intensity at which we lived... Um, it doesn't, there's not a lot of hooks people have to mm-hmm. hang all that on. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, now that I'm older and maybe wiser, I look back and I think, wow, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I would never do that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I'm so grateful. We used to say that we pulled ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. We mm-hmm. didn't have any teachers we just invented things. We invented something for ourselves because it was so intense that turned out to be counsel. We called it cosmic show and tail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it was just, it was like we, had, we invented forms that later we found out were the forms that are invented by people who are going on this quest. Um, so, so here we are 24 years later. Yeah, or how many years later? Well, 69 to 2013, right? 24 I don't think later. it's 24. I think it's closer to 40 years. I'm sorry, 40. <laughs> something like yeah, that. No, no, I, I apologize. Yeah, it's 69 like... to 2009 is 40, so 44 years later. Thank exactly. you for catching that. So here we are 44 years later. And what do you think from where you are now? the legacy of that period of time is in the present. In other words, if you were a cultural historian who was going to try to decipher uh, what that meant, and Bill Clinton had a wonderful line. He said, if, if on the whole you think what happened in the 70s was good, you're probably a liberal, and if you think it was bad, you're probably a conservative. You know, so, but, you know, the, so that's a kind of a little trope about it. But when you think about um, when you think about that period where we both grew up, you know, I was very much a part of that also. Um, what do you honestly think the legacy of it is? Oh, wow, that's a great question. And I don't know if I've ever thought about it in exactly that way. Um, as you were posing it... Um, what came to mind, and it's sort of like a pipe dream, maybe, not to use the mm-hmm. term that we used to use, but it's, it, what came to mind is that sort of like most people dove back into a traditional way of life because they had children, they, they, mm-hmm. they needed money for mm-hmm. family, and, and, you know, they, they just dove back into, mm-hmm. um, and... Gloriously so. I no critique of that. Um, but I always thought, well, you know, when they get to be, when they get to their second Saturn return, or with their midlife crisis, mm-hmm. or you know, when they retire, or when they mm-hmm. they finally come to the end of that householder period of time, here's a bunch of people who actually know that the way the story of the culture is not all there is. So one hope or belief I have is that. It provided us with a body, with a body of people who are now getting into their elder years, who may be actually truly helpful 
Um, and I know a lot of young friends, I mean, I consider myself failed because, you know, the, the juggernaut that I, you know, I tried to deal with, you know, consumerism, that's, there's no way, shape or form that my little strategy and the strategy of my friends made the difference we hoped it would make. So, but I want to just, can I, okay, yeah, can please, I just, please. I'm sort of in the middle of yeah, yeah. doing that. Yeah, thought. Please go for it. Um, Uh, but the young people I've met who are now the, the you know, the, the big thinkers of, of their generation, they still like, we're not mad at you. <laughs> you were the pioneers. You opened the way. We're the people who are figuring out the app for it. Absolutely. And so it's I... It's the do-it-yourself movement. It's the maker movement. It's this incredible generation of young people who are trying to enact in reality what we tried to do in theory and in our personal lives. Exactly. And I feel it's the generation we've been waiting for. Yes. And I, I feel now I'm so excited about being at a time in my life where I'm sort of more or less over myself, not totally, of course, and we never are, but sort of over myself enough to be excited about being a resource to younger people, not to download what I know into them and get them to do what I did, but just to be a resource mm-hmm. um, to younger people and a, and a cheerleader and an encourager and, and to be a partner with. And to, it's, it's really a terrific generation um, that we can partner with now. So... Do you think it is good for you to hold that what you tried to do was a failure? In other words, I no, can tell I don't. the story that another way. Yes, and everybody does tell me the story. And it's not that I failed. It's that the, con- the actual goal I had was, didn't, it didn't was a goal a of a young, on-fire mind. Mm-hmm. And so... I was like, it was, I, I was like, you know, the, the difficult will do like today. The impossible might take a little longer. That's the kind of person I was and probably still am, although I'm tempered in that. So, no, it, it failed at changing the world. It succeeded at changing many people. But it's also, it put certain questions and memes into the water table that I think have actually spread. Um, This idea that money is your life energy uh, is one that has absolutely spread. I mean, a lot of the ideas in your money, your life is spread. Um, And um, so, no, I have no question about that I have done my... I've given my... Not in my share, but I... I gave my I gave my very 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 best. I I admire my passion. I admire my dedication. I admire my 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 chutzpah. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, I I got myself into places that I had no reasonable reason to be able to get mm-hmm. into and make mm-hmm. a difference. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I shouldn't have even been at that you know Environmental Grantmakers Association conference. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't, but. Somehow or another, there I was. Neither should I. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so yeah. There we both were. (laughs) I I don't regret. I I don't actually have any regrets. You know, before we talk about blessing the hands that feed us, I I just want to make one observation about 
our generation and the, the maker generation, the do-it-yourself generation. What I've come to believe is that the 60s and the time following, that are the cultural creatives that came out of the hippies and so on and so forth, uh, that go on then to the do-it-yourself and the maker movement, that what this really essentially is, is it's a, a renewal of the romantic movement oh. of the 19th century in Europe. And you can see this in the enormous popularity that Carl Jung came to have. Mm. Because Jung, as a psychologist who created a map of the psyche that for the cultural creatives became far more central than Freud, Jung was widely read and he took a whole set of romantic theories and practices from you know, literature and from psychology and from anthropology and so on. And he packaged them as a scientific, so-called scientific psychology. And, and he carried, therefore, this meme of the romantic movement into the culturally illiterate uh, new world where we just have no sense of, uh, you know, the cultural history that was so deeply rich in Central Europe and which the World War II almost completely destroyed. But the meme, by from Jung and others, but Jung is a great example, was reborn uh, uh, in the uh, 60s and the hippies and then the cultural creatives and, and so on. And um, so... And the meme of, of romanticism has certain very beautiful aspects, but it also has many downsides mm-hmm. um, because uh, it has a really strong tendency to look at the world through rose-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of the myth of the noble savage in one form or other, or, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to all groove together and get back to the land and all that stuff. And uh, it's beautiful, and in some ways, it uh, helps us move toward truth. But it also has a really hard time uh, with uh, another movement and thought, which is whatever you want to call pragmatism or realism mm-hmm. or whatever. So romanticism has many, many things to say for it, uh, but it really misses what the pragmatists and the realists have to offer. And in fact, uh, romanticism took a really heavy hit at the end of World War II because a lot of cultural historians associated it with fascism. And there were really Mm. links between German romanticism and the fascist movement. Uh, and 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 post World War II pragmatism, Dewey and all those guys, uh, really was an effort to create a grounded, you know, pragmatic approach to the world that didn't suffer from the rose-colored glasses that um, that lent themselves to the pathology of fascism and so on. So, for me, the current period of uh, you know the hippie, the cultural creatives, and so on, while in many respects, it's carrying the memes that in some ways point to the best possible solutions. But there's this one-sidedness. It doesn't, it doesn't carry the same willingness to look reality or certain aspects of reality 
in the face that I think pragmatism and realism do. So I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. That's that super interesting. Mm-hmm. So I have several mm-hmm. things that I hope mm-hmm. I can remember them all and trying yeah. to get them on my fingers. Um, one thing is, personally, I think that that's one reason why Your Money, Your Life was this breakout bestseller book, because it was this blend of pragmatism and romanticism. That's beautiful. That's such a good point. Yeah, and and so people, Buddhists would say yeah. we were Buddhists, and Christians would say we were Christians, and, pra- you know, like, you know, uh, uh uh, you know, financial people, financial planners would say, well, this is, you know, I give this to all my clients. And it wasn't that we designed it that way. It's just that, that it wasn't ideological about either position. It was simply, let's take a look at what's real, which is, in a way, it's very romantic. That, that even, you know, the small human mind can actually perceive what's real. Um, and... It's also very pragmatic. Like, how does this work? You know, Joe was an engineer. He was trained as an engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one thing. The second thing is that in the Romanticism, and it's an interesting analogy because I would say that our generation was very subject to guru worship Mm -hmm. and to giving our power away to gurus who came. Of every way, shape, and form, there was a period of time where we uh, we worked on something called the 8th International Human Unity Conference that was in Vancouver, B.C. in 1981, you know, a long time ago. Um, but it, it led us to uh, get together with many different spiritual groups. The theme was Awakened to Oneness. How are, how are we all on a shared journey? And so it was like close up and personal and seeing how many people had, you know, swallowed the te- some teaching or another hook, line, and sinker. Um, and so we were very subject to that. And there was, it was very, lots of cults, um, lots of ways in which people surrendered their um, better judgment. I agree with that. And, and at the same time, I think another influence of our generation was this, Borrowing from the East, rejection mm-hmm. of our, you know, our Judeo-Christian roots, and and the influx, mm-hmm. it, you know, Yogananda brought it over sooner, but you know there was this whole influx of Suzuki, Roshi, and you know all of these Zen teachers and Buddhist teachers, um, and some Hindu teachers, Vedanta, who that was all. It was all sort of the philosophical search for um, meaning that was more grounded. But I think that. Um, what I observed is that it was, and I, we did this, it's very difficult for the, a mind formed in America uh, at that time, and the idealistic mind, the romantic mind, taking on a teaching like that. And, and doing it in a, almost a fascistic way, if you will, doing it in such a way that you think you can live this, but you actually can't. You think you can do it without a teacher, but you can't. You know, I mean, this is the story of my idealistic community is a story of trying to live the truth and, and, and basically developing a huge shadow that none of us could see as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it took, it's taken me years to uh, understand with great compassion for myself 
how I suppressed my basic human self in an effort to become the spiritual ideal that I saw was so possible, you know. So I think all of these things are influences. Um, and, you know, you can make you can make that cultic consciousness wrong or you can just say we were very young and fumbling along and that's brought us to a more textured and mature understanding, you know, with lots of, like, high values but also lots of good life experience and, the, and I'd say the best of us have not collapsed under that, have not like come down on one foot or another. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a beautiful line from the great uh, historian Arnold Toynbee who said that he thought that it could turn out that the most important event of the 20th century was the coming of the Dharma to the West mm-hmm. and that um, the question of what would happen when the powerful meme of the Dharma encountered, you know, the West was really a fundamental question. And I think that's still being worked through. I would argue that it wasn't the most important event of the 20th century, but at a cultural level, it's certainly among the most important events. You know, I mean, what it makes me think of right now, and it's in my own life, um, is that I have been very attracted to, spent a lot of time in Latin America, especially Brazil. I just feel like, I feel, whether if you believe in reincarnation, I must have spent a bunch of lifetimes there because it is just, I get off the plane and I'm happy. Uh, but there's also this narrative about the eagle and the condor that the people in Pachamama talk about, that there's this other integration of north and south that's going on right now. It's an interest, I have nothing, I have no therefore about this. It's just, it's interesting about the joining, the coming together of the East and West. Um, but. And also the North and South. But the North and South is more the indigenous mind yeah. and the cultivated mind. That's um, fascinating. Yeah, and so the integration that's happening right now. And all is, four of these are converging in North America. Well, and it is. South America. Yeah, um, uh, uh, Maladoma Somme, one time I heard him mm-hmm. speak and he said somebody was talking to him about. You know, God, it's terrible, you know, that, I don't know, they were talking about the transfer of, you know, his culture to our culture. And he said, look, the indigenous mind is moving to North America. The young kids in my tribe want to have boom boxes and make money and have sneakers. And you can't suppress that. And so here's a culture. It doesn't matter. I mean, it matters for cultural survival. It matters to me. But it doesn't matter where that mind of 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 connection of not just connection with the natural world but understanding oneself as integral to part of expression of mm-hmm. alive in the natural world that we are the natural world that's um so that that mind is coming now it's inhabiting north america and it's not you know there's people who are seriously seriously on paths whether it's nature awareness or whether it's you know um, you know Native American traditions, seriously on a path of integration of, of mm-hmm, the indigenous and the intellectual. So Which yeah, cool, cool it idea. Provides us a, a beautiful segue <laughs> to a remarkable new book, "Blessing the Hands That Feed Us," by Vicki Robin, best-selling author of "Your Money and or Your Life: What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About." Food, community, and our place on Earth. Uh, 
so what inspired this book? What, what, what did you decide to do that led to this book? On the one hand, uh, being a minimalist and something of a survivalist and having done the back to the land period of time in my life and having lived in the desert in Arizona and hauling water and um, always growing gardens wherever I was. Um, so I had that in my history. And then I basically, I, I, I regussied myself up and did the whole your money, your life thing for quite a long time. And so that's back there. Um, and I was addressing money and the things money can buy and really food was off the table, so to speak. And then I had cancer and I resigned from being Vicky Robin. I sort of left the brand out there for anybody else to use. You know, like if you want to relate to Vicky Robin, what you think that I am, feel free, but I'm gone. I'm doing art and dance and music and community and, um, and I used to say at that time, if the world wants to transform my presence, it's welcome to do so. That's not my job anymore. Uh, I felt very liberated. And I also, it was a period of time when I really returned to surrender of my good ideas. I started thinking from my gut and not from my mind. I would, I would put my hand on my gut. You know, that's where my cancer was and the surgery was. And I put my hand there and said, I'll think about it. I didn't, I, I just relinquished uh, I relinquished the fearful data I had lived with I relinquished I relinquished all the stories about the future I really went into I don't know um, not as a collapse of my intelligence but as a liberation from the structures of my own thought you know so I sort of like I was I really went back into that that deep inquiry time and did very little public work, did very little public speaking. Um, um, so I came home and I was looking for a model, and that's when I discovered the Transition Towns. A friend of mine who's a filmmaker who was over in Totnes um, stumbled on Rob Hopkins, who was the sort of originator. Yeah. Um, and Out of a town in England, which town was it? it was Totnes in, yeah. in Devon. Yeah. Yeah. But he started out, his story is he started out, he was a permaculture teacher, and he was teaching a class. He was 10 years he'd been teaching the class in Kinsale, uh, Ireland. Um, and it just so happened that uh, Colin Campbell, who was one of the leading spokespersons, he was like an oil man who kind of got religion on peak oil, lived right nearby. And at the same time, he saw some film. I mean, there was a conjunction of things where he he got Colin in to talk to his class, and he and he realized, oh, we have to do this systematically, and if we have any compassion for the, for ourselves or the future, we need to start to do what he called then an energy descent action plan. We need to say, okay, in twenty years' time, if we have you know, 50%, 20%, 10% of the oil available to us. How are we going to live our lives? How are we going to have fun? How are we going to drink water? How are we going to, you know, have food? How are we going to do all this? And so he assigned his class for a year. They developed for Kinsale, Ireland, this energy descent action plan. And he, Which led to the transition town. Moment. Exactly. He published this little thing and thinking that 10 copies were going to go out. And it just like spread all over the world. Uh, and so that's what launched it. And then he went to Totnes. Uh, 
and I can't give you all the reasons why he did that, but he went on uh, there to to give it a try in that community. So let's talk for a minute about the Transition Towns Movement. And we were having a, a, a side conversation during a short break. Um, but a couple of things that I'd love to explore with you before we go on to talk more about the, your book. Um, one thing I've noticed is, like, we have the Transition Towns Movement in West Marin also. Right. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that the Transition Towns Movement does not take in the same way in all locales. Right. Uh, and sometimes you get what I would call sort of Transition Towns light. Um, because what happens is that it resonates for the cultural creatives, but people don't necessarily do the groundwork to bring on the conservative community and, you know, the shopkeepers and the business people and so on. And I think the original concept was a lot of deep work in community organizing to get everybody on board. So the first point I'd like to make is that it's an enormously valuable concept. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem to take in the same way everywhere. And the second point, which we were talking about briefly, I'm a huge admirer of Richard Heinberg's work on peak oil. Um, and I've discussed fracking with him. We did a new school conversation, uh, but the fracking uh, boom came after our conversation. But it does seem to me that fracking, with all of its environmental and human horrors, which are enormous, quite fundamentally changes the peak oil equation. That is to say that we are not going to run out of fossil fuels on the same schedule that peak oil originally assumed. Peak oil didn't see fracking coming. And, and I stand to be corrected on this, but it seems to me that it would be better to acknowledge that the peak oil argument needs to be modified to recognize that fracking is making the United States an energy exporter, you know? Uh, and, uh, I mean, in the paper today, the head of Dow Chemical is opposing the export of fracking gas out of the United States uh, because uh, he it's very good for Dow Chemical to have gas be very low cost because they can create all these plastics out of it. And he says it's going to hurt the industrial renaissance in the United States by exporting this extremely low-cost gas, which costs three times as much in Europe, which is why they want to export it. So it just seems to me that the, the energy equation has changed. And I stand to be corrected on it, but it seems to me that that affects at least the timing of peak oil. And I'm just curious whether that's a piece of this that you've thought through. Uh, I have thoughts about it. Uh, I'm not an expert. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't... The, there's, like, in, in the hardcore peak oil community, there are discussions about when. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> like, have we peaked? Are we going to peak? Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, like, we're going to peak, and then it's going to be slow decline, peak and fast decline. You know, all of those things are conversations that, that, that don't interest me that much. Mm -hmm. What interests me is the recognition that we have built a civilization on a limited supply of energy. Um, and that 
I sort of enjoyed the recoil narrative when when I was really deeply into it because I like I I, I think we are way beyond the limits. It's not like I think that the the data is that we are way beyond the limits. That we're you know our, our ecological footprint is beyond the planet. We have crossed one planet living. We're now in one point five planet living. And because I I liken it to a guy who's jumped off a hundred story building and you know he passes story fifty and somebody goes like ha ah, what's happening to you? He says I'm flying. You know so we're flying. We don't understand the crashing is coming. So the peak oil narrative at that time, because I enjoy framing my communications in this way, I thought would give people an understanding that there is a limit and that, and I had written a whole book on liberating limits that hasn't gotten published yet because I knew the crash was coming and I wanted people to have a different frame for limits, that limits are not in the way, they are the way, they were the shaping tools of freedom that freedom is not no limits, freedom is the mastery of limits, being able to design with limits according to your uh, purposes in life and your sense of values, morals, ethics, beauty. All of those things are defined by the constraints that you place around this is in, this is out. All of life is built on limits. So I had this whole thing that I was trying, a language that I was trying to offer to the culture to Which adapt. I think is beautiful, by the way. Yeah, I do too. I think it's gorgeous, but I... uh, It's a beautiful language. And I eventually will be able to share it. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, the fracking doesn't... It takes the attention off of a limited resource, but he doesn't solve a damn thing. And it puts us in an even more compromised relationship with the earth it's like i couldn't agree with that more and so it's it it, now you know it's sort of like it's sort of like you know well you know somebody has cancer and Mm. they've been told you have six months to live Mm. and that 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 frame of six months to live a lot of spiritual work gets done in that frame you know and you're making your amends and you're evaluating your life and you're writing your will and you're thinking about your legacy and you're telling everybody you love that you love them and then suddenly this new drug comes along and boom you're not going to die and what happens then the pressure's off and beautiful yay you're going to survive but the pressure's off and so so we sink into a conscious unconsciousness again so i like things that are awakening incidents Um, And I'm not doing that to be mean, but since I've gone through cancer and I understand what it's like to hit that kind of wall and what the benefits are of facing reality, um, I'm all for it. So I just think it hasn't changed anything. It's just, it's just put, it's just taken the conversation off of the headlines. It's made fools of people who talk about peak oil, which isn't true. It's just like, wow, we get away to not have to face this. And... The damage that's being done to land, land ownership, um, water tables, poisons in the... I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like, it sort of gives me this feeling of like, God, my species, like, can we not wake up before we've like exploded this whole planet and sucked like the last thing dry? So I think that those I, are my I, attitudes I about it. <laughs> I won't pursue this too much further, but... To, and I haven't read all of the work on it, and Heinberg has eloquent responses to this, which I don't have at my fingertips. But I guess what I would say is that in my own 
humble opinion, it is better to recognize that what Pequel said is, we're actually going to run out of the stuff. No, no, no. They never did. Peak oil is just, we have used uh-huh. the early and easy oil. We uh-huh. have used half of the known supply. Right, right. The other half is it's going to be more difficult to extract. And more expensive. And more expensive to extract. Bingo, fracking. And we are not going to, the last quarter, we're not going to be able to get it anyway. So the question is, we have a chamber of choice between that, that, and you could say peak oil wasn't like Thursday. You know, peak oil is like a 20-year period of time mm-hmm. where we're sort of like hitting that edge. Mm-hmm. And so in this chamber of time, we get to make different choices about this incredible reservoir of energy and potentially use that energy to take us into the solar age. You know, that's a choice that we have. The choice that we're making is exploiting the energy to keep the old industrial system running, and it's pitiful. So, no, it was never, it was never, we're going to run out of oil. Fair enough. I still believe that fracking has changed the conversation, but I will hold that for another day. I believe it changed the conversation, but it actually, I think, um, took an edge off. Yeah, that was a very creative and productive edge. I agree edge. with that completely. It took off that creative edge, and and from my point of view, it's a horror. And and I forget who said this, but in effect, we're trading maybe another ten years of unlimited energy use for more climate change and for poisoning the water table totally. of the country. In ways that will last for hundreds We're of already years. at yeah. over 400 yeah. parts per million. Yeah. Another so. argument about the peak oil thing yeah. was like, not only maybe we've used halfway up, but we can't use the other half and have a habitable right, planet. exactly. You know, so it was a basically large speed bump that yeah. understandably, of mm-hmm. course, the, you know, the, the sort of the, the in, sort of the inchoate beast of the industrial growth society that simply wants to survive because that's anything that comes into being wants to survive. Yeah. Of course, we are going to find another way. Or the deep water drilling. You know, like, we're going to like, oh, no, we figured it out. It's going to be safe now. Yeah. It's um so let's let's anyway let's so let's go back there. so anyway back I came home and I wanted to do this relocalization stuff I became aware of our uh, of how food dependent we are on Whidbey Island mm-hmm. I asked a friend of mine who's a farmer who I met through the transition Whidbey I said you know could could the could we the could could we, could we here on the island survive eating food grown on the island I mean how mm-hmm. good is this and she said um, yeah. We could survive for a couple of weeks in August. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't... That, to me, is a terrifying piece mm-hmm. of data, you know, and I don't know why everybody else isn't, like, going, like, whoa, that's amazing. So it was just... I was sort of set up for this, and then completely just going to a party. A friend of mine was at the party, and she is a local farmer, and she said that she and her partner were talking about that there should be some imitation of the supersize me called super veg me, you know, like could she actually feed somebody out of her garden? And she was looking for somebody who'd run the experiment with her. And 
I was just that kind of cookie, you know. That, but it wasn't anything. I'll live from your farm. Yeah, it's just like okay, let's run it. You know, let's I, let's see what I'll happens. I'll live from your farm for a month, and we'll see what happens. But I wasn't trying to prove anything, and and this is another point that the mm. best stuff that happens in my life is after I've had all the big deal ideas and gotten everybody organized mm-hmm. to do something, some little action that I can actually do shows up and I humbly and innocently engage in it and then it explodes my life. That's the thing that that opens the door to finding another way. So I did the 10 mile diet and I, you know, she asked me to measure my cholesterol before and after my weight. And I said I would blog every day, you know, and I document what we were doing. And it awakened it awakened me. I, it awakened me out of my sort of chosen cancer bubble slumber. Because I think I become excited when I can see a way out that is reasonable, fun, um, everybody could do, you know, sort of hidden in plain sight. I get I get interested in that. And I also, by diving into food, every day I would blog and I, like, I realized that the Wheat crop had burned in Russia, and there were food riots in Mozambique. I thought, oh, my God, this whole, there's a way to look at the geopolitics of the world through the lens of food, and it reveals something that you don't see otherwise. I started finding out that the United States and China are on a um, race to buy up agricultural land in Africa, <laughs> And Latin America. And Latin America. Including Brazil. Exactly. You know, it's like, so you start Where to look... Where they grow GMO crops using Monsanto's Roundup. Exactly. Uh, and chase the local people off the land. Exactly. And where there is abundant food in the Atlantic rainforest, where there is a, a healthy food movement that's really getting stronger, where I've done work now. I, I ran a local food lab with a friend of mine who's a major global feminist activist person, and she bought this land because she's now interested in local food. She's interested in, like, landing something. And we ran a food lab, and I'm going to do it again in Brazil. So Brazil has all of the complexity that we have, but it's a little more uh, Wild West than we are. You know, this like, for better or worse, things can start there that can't quite start here. So, yeah, um, I started to see the world through the eyes of food. I started to understand. And I also had this, I don't like calling it a mystical experience. That may be elevating it too much. But I had an experience during that month of standing in my backyard and realizing um, it felt like there was a moment where I felt that sort of like a tingling, like I came alive with, you know, the fur on my body and that eyes had opened up in my shoulder blades and my back. And I realized I am surrounded here by the natural world. It looks like I'm in a little civilized backyard, but this is life right all around me. I'm surrounded by food. I don't know what's food here, but the idea, how did I get the idea that that the only food available to me is the grocery store? What an odd idea of on the part of a creature who has grown up, you know, like with its brothers and sisters, the other living plants and animals, and has survived for eons. 
not maybe not eons, but hundreds of thousands of years, eating what's around. Like, how else would it be? So it was like this half hour of, of this shift from that, not just the dependency on the grocery store, but the imagine, my imagination constrained around food by what's in the store. And I also, so I felt like, I, oh, I belong here. I'm part of this. I cannot fail. And I also thought, if this place fails, I do fail. So it was like a bonding with, like, this is my food place. And I, because I love this place and because I care about it and because I'm awake and alive, I want to engage. I want, I want all my farmers to flourish. I want to find ways for them to have land. I mean, it was like, I'm now on this new, you could call it a kick, but I think it's just something that could last for the rest of my life of, of engaging in this question of like, how can we, without vilifying Monsanto or vilifying the industrial system, I mean, we created it, but say, how can we store the prosperity and abundance of the food systems right around us so that increasingly we the, we the eaters can feed ourselves locally and legally and economically? How can we do this? And it's all right there. I mean, I was thinking this morning that I don't know how it could be done, but somehow with Google Maps, you could, what if we took a picture of this island and we, we measured the square footage of, built, of the built environment and then recognized that we are little houses planted in fields? <laughs> we, you know, it's like, because you can think about the industrial system. Oh, my God, the, you know, the people who own all the money now can own all the land. And that's part of what's driving us into poverty is that we can't afford houses anymore because the people with a lot of money can just buy them up like that. They drive up the prices, blah, blah. Big narrative there. But, like, they don't own all the land because, like, we have all these yards. Now, is that enough to feed the people? Who knows? We haven't tested it. But there's, um, we are little houses planted in a big forest. And um, isn't, for me, that's interesting. You know, and then you have, you know, like how you're going to get people to let you plant your carrots on the land. And who wants to do that anymore when the store is so easy and, you know, food is cheap and blah, blah. This is a, a lovely book. Um, and I, I recommend it. Um, Bill McKibben writes, Vicki Robin has helped millions of Americans reshape their lives in sound and beautiful ways, but this may be her most important project yet and a crucial one for our tired planet. And uh, Francis Moore LePay did the uh, introduction uh, with... Uh, uh, her daughter Anna. With her daughter Anna. And um, so... Um, one thing that I'd, I'd like to sort of close on, um, you did this uh, eating within a 10-mile radius uh, and, and talk about it, and I won't spoil the book for people going through what you learned in detail. But um, I'd love to talk about the cultural community of South Whidbey Island. Um, You've lived in New York, you've lived in lots of places, San Francisco, Arizona, Mexico. Um, I, 
I find um, the the culture and consciousness of South Whidbey Island to be quite remarkable in my experience. And I just want to check with you as to whether you find that to be true, and if so, how you would describe it. It's mm, a great question. Um, well, my, my little jaundice self says that there's, in my travels around the country, uh, there are many places like this where people say, well, I just felt called and it's really special and there's special people mm-hmm. here. So I understand that it's a special place, and um, but I know there's many places. Many special places, that's true. And um, so I, mean, I don't want to. I don't want to inflate ourselves. This is a special place. There are lots of special places. Yeah. But I guess what I'm asking is not about inflation. Um, but what is it here? But uh, so let me put out my bias. My bias is that that the Pacific Northwest has a different culture from, say, California. Yes. And that in the Pacific Northwest, people seem to me to be more intentional about trying to live in right relationship with each other and the earth and uh, that that's kind of distributed through the Northwest and then that there are particular communities where that general tendency is even further concentrated and that South Whidbey seems to me to be one of those areas where not just the cultural creatives, but conservatives, evangelicals, uh, all kinds of people seem to have a pact about trying to take care of each other Mm -hmm. uh, a little more than you see in other places. Um, And it attracts an amazing number of uh, creative people. So I have some thoughts about that. And several of them. I can't stir them on all my fingers. Mm -hmm. Um, One is that we're an island. And when you're an island, it concentrates energy. And and people really don't like going off island. You know, it's it's getting more expensive. It's time-consuming. In the summer, you have to wait for ferries. But Mm -hmm. there's also this sort of, you know, sometimes we call it the dark side or America with a K. You know, there's this feeling... The boundary of the island creates a willingness to dive in with one another and create collaborative solutions. It's just how island people are. Uh, so I think that's in our favor. Um, I think in terms of the Pacific Northwest, I would agree with you on that. And uh, one thought I've had about it, not necessarily correct, is um, when you look at... Um, the predictions around climate change, we are one of the most blessed places on Earth. We are going to suffer the least. It's going to get a little warmer and wetter. Uh, We're going to lose our snowpack, and so water is going to be an issue for us, but not necessarily horrifically. Um, We do have earthquakes, and we do have sea level rise, but um, by and large, um, we our imagination, even if we're not conscious of it, of creating a future, is 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 less. We bump into less devastation in our in our thinking, um, and the it's a very productive region. You know the the Native American tribes who lived here 
had incredible wealth because they had the fisheries and they had the forests, they had the salal berries and they had the you know the elk and the deer and the you know there was there was there was the struggle for food um, was not as strong. The climate has always been moderated by being in this Pacific, whatever the the weather system is. Um, so we don't have extremes. We don't have the desperation like you got to get everything stored before winter because you're not going to be able, you know. Uh, so there is something that is blessed. Not to make us, not in any ego-inflating way, but there's just something blessed about this place. And South Whidbey, because it's an island, concentrates that energy. I think the other thing is that, you know, in the 70s, this place was really a depressed state. And it allowed a lot of very creative people, you know, of my generation to come in here and create a culture, a collaborative culture. Many of them attracted by the Chinook Learning Center. And some and some not. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So there's one strain, you know, and then that's the other piece is that the Chinook Learning Center became a magnet and it drew people in. And then eventually this, what I call the cultural creative chamber of commerce, you know, Rick and Grassi comes here, settles, buries his parents up in the, in the grave, in the cemetery. And he starts, you know, he's a summer gathering. He starts somewhat, I mean, maybe this is dismissive. I mean, maybe he wouldn't like what I'm saying, but I feel like he is, he's a great, um, attractor of people to this island, interesting, creative people, mm-hmm. uh, who once we get here, it's not like Rick. It's not like a plug and play community where you know Rick is going to take care of you and you know introduce mm-hmm. you to everybody and hold you up on a pedestal. No, no, you're an ordinary person who's come here and you have to make your way and make your way in the community. So there's been those forces, but there's also a lot of people who did not come here for the Chinook learning community who came here because they could buy some land and they were the old hippies. Um, and they made a life here and they influenced the culture here. Um, as a matter of fact, Chinook was sort of perceived as these pagans in the woods, but these other people, you know, like Lynn and Bill, uh, Lynn and Blake Williford, you know, they bought the Clyde. They're sort of like the sort of ex-hippies, ex-hippies citizens. Um, so what I find here is that this place is incredibly creative. Like we've got four theaters in a town of a thousand people. And they're not awful all the time, but that's an example. And, and we've got, you know, other theater troops and we've got... Um, artists and musicians and and because it's a sometimes you can't make a choice like just tonight I have two things to go to that both of them are like dear to me and I can't um but it's a place where you can come up with a creative idea and there's a generosity in the community to like say well let's give this one a try or let's let's attend that performance or there's something where we're for each other which maybe comes from being an island um, maybe comes from that we come into a generous culture. I don't know, but but it's a place that allows you to run experiments in the direction of something you consider more beautiful. And um, so I love that about mm. this place. And I've I've done a number of 
small and large things here that have been received, well received. What would you like written on your tombstone? <laughs> Life is either a great adventure or it's nothing. <laughs> Vicki Robin, thank you for being with us at the new school. Yeah, well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure and honor, a blessing to... Thank you very much. The book is called Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth by Vicki Robin, author of Your Money or Your Life.